Got awfully quiet in here. Really, uh, yeah, you, I mean, you all can make a little bit of noise, I promise. It doesn't throw me off that bad. We're glad to be back. Uh, week of vacation was a blast. I just feel like I need to publicly repent for gluttoning, which thought like going, I thought that going down, I'd be okay, you know, a meal or two or whatever, we'd be all right. But I kind of just shut the door on that about Tuesday and just spent the rest of the week enjoying the bounty that was always in front of me. It's amazing how that happens. But it's nice to have uh, rest. Uh, it's nice, most of all, not to live a life where that is the favorite part of your year. And I have been so blessed for so long uh, by God to serve in this church, uh, to be called to do something uh, not only here but with the city that I work at. That uh, vacation is not is, is never been the highlight uh, of my year. So I am just very thankful for that, and I just want to publicly uh, proclaim that doing life with you all is uh, a wonderful blessing. And uh, because of that, I don't have to, at least not in a long time, uh, I have not been so anxious to get away that I almost couldn't stand it. So once again, we come back to uh, being here with you, doing life with you, loving this church, loving its people. And hopefully this morning, God uses uh, my words uh, because of his word to bless us, to draw us close, and to get us ready for what's ahead. This morning's sermon, we will eventually be in 1 Kings chapter 17. We'll be in the end of 16. In chapter 17, Becoming a Pejorative is the title of this morning's sermon. Becoming a Pejorative, what is a pejorative? It's basically a word that you and I use in disdain. We use to point out that something is um, almost sarcastic. It's a word that, that carries with it tremendous meaning. And as we get into 1 Kings chapter 16 and chapter 17, this morning we're going to look at two words that have become pejoratives. Ahab and Jezebel. And we're going to dig into this story for the next, maybe the next month between them and Elijah as we go through. Because there's a lot uh, to go through in this story as we look at these biographies that we've been doing now for two and a half years. We land uh, now with one of the most evil couples maybe the world has ever known. And you and I, I think there's a tremendous application for the moment that we live in. Uh, that we need to be prepared and ready for the days ahead. So we're going to walk through that foundation this morning. But where have we been? Well, a couple weeks ago, we talked about bad leadership, right? We spent two weeks talking about Rehoboam and Jeroboam. The young and foolish uh, leader, his harsh leadership, the idea that if Solomon was tough, Rehoboam was going to be tougher, right? And, and the kind of the key passage in that was, if, if my father disciplined you with whips, I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. I am going to be worse, harder, stronger, tougher than my father. The problem with what he did when he, when he took that stance was he alienated 10 of the 11 tribes. The, Levite, the Levites don't count. So 10 of the tribes left and they ended up following Jeroboam who was no less foolish. He was insecure. And I hope uh, last week or last time I preached when we talked about that, I tried to really ram that point home to you and I. Listen, insecurity will take you places that it is very hard to recover from. Insecurity, especially as a Christian, will take you places where faith is null and void. There will be no faith. You and I will look at circumstances. We will be worried that God will not come through with what He has promised. And we will do things that compromise testimony, that compromise our future, that compromise our family and our church. All out of insecurity. How is Jeroboam a picture of that? Because God told him, I'm going to give you the kingdom. 
God told him that. And yet one of his first decrees as king was to build an idol they could worship together so that they wouldn't leave and go back to Jerusalem. They wouldn't leave and go back to the tribe of Judah. He was worried that God wouldn't follow through. That is the same insecurity you and I have in our lives on a daily basis. It is that insecurity that leads to pragmatism, a word that I've used a lot. If it works, do it. We are not pragmatists as Christians. We live by the word. What God says works will work. And you and I don't need to deviate. We're not relativists. We don't believe something is true here that's not true there. We believe in the word of God and that God is true. The sin of insecurity is the sin of faithlessness. And it will destroy your life and mine. It makes us do crazy things. We talked about those two kings. We talked in 1 Kings chapter 13. The warning, no other message. Remember the prophet gets a message from God. He goes and he delivers it. Part of the message was you need to leave and not be fed and not drink and not stop. You need to get back to wherever it is he was told to go. A second prophet... Liar comes in and says, oh, but God talked to me too. And he told me I needed to feed you. There was a tremendous warning in that passage for our culture right now. Not everybody that looks at you and I and says they speak on behalf of Christ is actually speaking on behalf of Christ. Many of them are preaching a false gospel. Many of them are mixing half-truths with total lies and then pitching them under the banner of being a Christian. And you and I have to be discerning right now. Who are you listening to? Who am I listening to? Are we listening to people that are bringing the full counsel of the Word of God? Or have they just, listen, the devil just subtly changes things. That's why you and I need to have an idea of the whole counsel of the Word of God. And if you don't have that yet, you need to be hip attached to somebody that does. A parent, somebody at this church, a loved one. Somebody that can just help you navigate. Why? Because the enemy's best tricks are not overt. They are covert. They come in slyly and change something of, of, of utmost importance. But they do it just, just a little bit. Just enough to get you walking down another path. It doesn't have to be a 180. It doesn't have to be a 90 degree turn. It can just be a subtle shift that will eventually cause you tremendous chaos. That was 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings 14 is where we were two weeks ago. We looked at what was going on. These, the, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah are now dying for leadership. They are actually fighting each other. Bad leadership brings about horrible consequences. And I told you all that week that one of the first signs of this kind of sin is always conflict. Internal conflict between me and the Lord. Internal conflict between that new spirit I've been given and that old flesh that struggles to be in charge. And then external conflict with the people of God. Find yourself alienated from the church for some reason. You find yourself alienated from people that love the Lord, that want to serve Him and want to honor Him. And yet for some reason you're just not as tight as you used to be. I would beg you to, to pray and to beg God to show you where the sin is. Because this kind of conflict leads to separation. 
It leads to grievances. Again, you and I grieve the Holy Spirit. We quench the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we're arguing with God. Our bodies get all out of control. Why? Because we're arguing between the, the new spirit God has given and that old flesh that doesn't go away until you and I die. You understand that is your worst enemy? It's not Satan. It's that old flesh living in us. That kind of conflict just starts to work. And that's what we see in the nation of Israel. Conflict has taken place. These two kings have led down bad directions. They have uh, honored sinful things. And because of that now, what was a brotherhood is now at war. It should grieve our hearts deeply to know, not only in Old Testament times, but even New Testament times, even churches, you know, you could go back and say almost every church split started because of some kind of conflict that wasn't dealt with properly. Some sin had entered the camp and nobody was willing to deal with it, whether it was in my own life or something that I could see in a brother or sister. And because of that, we had these splits and these divisions. It's always a sign of sin. First Kings chapter 14, we actually see that these people are literally dying for good leadership. They're going to war and the Lord is grieved. Go over, uh, if you will, I'm going to read one passage in 15 because we're going to come back to Asa later, but I want to bring this up so that you and I can see it today because it's a truth that needs to be uh, delivered right now. It doesn't need to be expanded on yet, but I need you to hear it. I need you to see it. Uh, chapter 15, verse 9 says this, In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah, and he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makah and his daughter of uh, Abishah. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord's as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. He also removed Makah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook of Kidron. Verse 14, but the high places were not taken away. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all of his days. And he brought into the house of the Lord the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold vessels. But the high places were not taken away. That's just a quick piece this morning. Some of us are dealing with things because we've not cleansed everything that needed to go. Some of us are dealing with things on repeat because we've gotten 95% of the way or 98% of the way. But there is something in our life, some sin, some attitude, some something that we have just not declared war on, cut down and burned in the fire of repentance yet. It's something that we just hang on to. As we look at the culture that we're living in right now, you and I are going to have to find places where this kind of stance is taken. It's going to look weird. Yeah. It's going to sound weird. Yeah. The culture is not going to understand. I know. Some of your parents or your family won't understand. I know. Some of it's going to look over the top. I know. In order to be prepared for what is next, you and I are going to have to figure out where we need to make war and make it. He did all of these things. And I just, I read through that uh, this morning as I was taking these notes down that I was like, you know what? There's a flicker there, but there's no finish. So often we have a flicker of something, but we don't finish it. Asa may have been, and, 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 the, and the Bible says he's wholly committed to the Lord. Like I'm trying to work that out of my mind. Like he's wholly committed. It's almost like the Solomon thing. It's so weird. Here's the wisest man outside of Jesus ever lived, but yet he makes such bad decisions. 
Here is Asus. He is wholly committed to the Lord, but he doesn't finish this one thing. And because of that, the people after him were tempted to sin. If you're watching the news right now, if you're sending your kids to public school, and it's not just here, it's everywhere. There are areas you and I need to draw lines and we need to make war now. It's not going to look right. I know. Some churches aren't going to understand. I know. I don't care. What comes next, you and I have to be prepared for. And half measures is not going to be there. It's not going to be what you and I can grab a hold of when the time comes. We need to draw lines and stick with them. If your children are in public school and you're not going through their books and talking about their teachers, if they're in Christian school and you're not going through their books and talking with them about their teachers or what they're learning, if they're in college and you're not talking with your kids about who you are paying to educate them right now, you are sinning against God. Your first flock is being handed to people that don't love the Lord. Do a Google search right now of these school board meetings with these parents. And I've told you all constantly, we are insulated in West Virginia. And I thank God because of that. Because we have people working in the school system that glance over things, turn another head, don't say it, don't pitch it. But you better believe that there are people above them that want your children learning and doing disgusting things. YouTube some school board meetings. And listen to these parents in California and New York and these other places of what their children are learning. It's time to draw lines. They want to rob their faith. They want to destroy their faith. They want to make your family a mockery and your beliefs taboo or horrible or wrong or bigoted or racist or homophobic. I mean, the same people that want five-year-olds picking their sex are educating your children. We live in a nation that calls many of them, just by, just by stance and percentage, many of them call themselves Christian. And they don't even care who's teaching their children. They don't care what's on Disney. They don't care what's on Nickelodeon. Just as long as they don't have to deal with their own kids. You understand what I'm saying? It's your job to rear your children. Exactly. It's not YouTubes. It's not cable TVs. If you allow them to rear your children, they will destroy your children. There are some lines that need to be drawn. What comes next is not for the weak or the coward. And Christian men, if you've bitten into the lie that you are to be quiet and to keep your mouth shut, and that is a godly thing to do, you are wrong. You are to lead. You are to get out front. You're not to be passive. This is, this is destructive stuff. Maybe I watched a little too much YouTube this week, but man, my heart just grieves. That we have idle standing that Christian people are just allowing their children to be taken to. They're allowing them to be fed off of. They're allowing them to rear their children. 
coming back and not being able to figure out why these children are leaving the church. Partly it's our fault because we didn't make it real. Partly it's our fault because we didn't combat the culture. You're not set around like we don't have an answer or we set around being lazy or God help us wanting to do our own thing so we'll give our children to whoever as long as they'll keep them long enough so that we can accomplish what we need to accomplish. That's not going to fly with God. We're going to stand before Jesus one day. That's not going to fly. He gave them to you. He gave your spouse to you. He gave your family to you. He gave this church to you. How did you steward it? Especially his children. Asa was a flicker, but no finish. Becoming a pejorative, what's it known? What's it mean to be known as an Ahab or a Jezebel? Look at 1 Kings chapter 16 with me. Why? Because we're going to see a PhD in bad leadership. This guy's got a doctorate. He's doctorate level. I had to search. Like, my education is so far behind. I didn't even know what level courses you had when you got a doctorate. You know they're 800? That sounds terrifying. Math, math 121 gave me a beating after 20 years of not having it. When I took it in college, I'm like, where did all these letters come from? I think I reached out to a couple people here that I knew, like, hey, I had that phone handy, day or night. Call it for help. There's a lot of letters in this book. The Venn diagram, like, what in the world is that? Okay. This guy is a PhD. Like, he's, he's a doctor level. You ready? Read it with me. Ahab. Reigns in Israel. Chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, the king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, a hile of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of uh, Abraham, uh, his firstborn, and set up the gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segov, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. The last verse in that is just a picture of God's prophecy coming true. Jericho was supposed to be, was supposed to lay uh, fallen forever. Okay? Why? Because that was supposed to be God's offering. That was a reminder of what the Lord did when he brought the nation through and started at Jericho. Why? What did the nation have to do to watch Jericho fall? They marched around the city. Remember? Totally based off of God's grace, God's mercy, and Him winning the battle. Do you remember? They marched around it once for several days. And the last time they marched around it seven times they were in, total, uh, in total silence. And then at the end they blew the trumpets to praise God and what happened to the walls of Jericho. They fell down. And then God said after that, whoever builds, whoever rebuilds this city will lay the starting with their firstborn and lay the finishing with their lastborn. That's the last piece of that passage. And why it's interjected there, I just think, is to show that the total rebellion, not just the timing, but the total rebellion to what God had said. And so this guy is forever linked to Ahab. And who was Ahab? Ahab was the worst king of Israel's history. Doctorate level, right? Doctor evil. First Kings chapter 16, 
29 to 33. What do we see in 30, uh, the first part of 30, 38? He lives evil out loud. It's just the first thing that comes off of the lips of the one writing the words about this king. He was evil. Some of us, heartbreakingly so, know people that that is their testimony. They're just evil. That was Ahab. Nothing to conquer. Nothing to write about that pleased like his. The overarching theme of his life was what did he do? He lived evil out loud. How about the second part of verse 30? He outdid his ancestors. He outdid his ancestors. Those that were before him couldn't hold a candle to him. And I love this idea. He brings in, I've just told you, and I went through the thing with Jeroboam just to remind you because this passage brings it up. What did Jeroboam do? He caused the nation of Israel to sin by creating idols that they could worship and not have to go back to Jerusalem. And so the writer of the passage says, Ahab was so wicked. And I want you to connect what's next, especially, especially you young ones that are here or listening to my voice now and into the future. God connects idolatry as a sin in this passage. Making other people worship an idol. He connects it with marrying a wicked person. Jeroboam did a wicked thing. He built idols and had the people to worship it. And that's what the writer of the word of God wants you and I to connect. When the very next piece of the passage says, Ahab outdid him by marrying a foreign queen. A wicked, evil, vile person. When you're in whatever that age or timeline is for you, where you are looking to go from courtship, being engaged, old enough to pull the trigger on these things and making them happen, into that time of being married, you better be paying very, very close attention. To the character of the person that you're hanging out with. You do not want to become one flesh with someone that is wicked. Because every bit of wickedness they do for the rest of their lives, you will be a part of. And to go into it willfully and knowing it is to just disobey what God has already told you. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. One of the news stories, and this blows my mind that it's news, but it is because our culture and our churches are so weak they don't understand it. One of the famous, uh, uh, used to be a movie star, Full House, what was it? No, the girl. Candace Cameron. Candace Cameron come out and made news this week with what? I want my children to date Christians. <gasps> That made a headline on Google that a Christian would want to obey the Word of God by obeying other Christians or by, by meeting and dating and marrying other Christians. Ooh. It's flooring. That's how totally out of sync our culture is with Scripture. Well, why wouldn't you want your kids to date an atheist? Because the rest of their life will be held. Every serious decision that has to be made will have to be made with someone that doesn't believe like them. That sounds fun. And God warns you and I to that. 
And I'm not talking about if, you, if you're in a situation and you have changed after that moment or they have changed. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people with a full view, no ring, no covenant saying, man, this person is really sweet. Boy, they are gorgeous. I am just going to marry them. Oh, and I'm a Christian. Dishonor God. And there's tremendous payment to be made when you do that. Ahab's sin of marrying a foreign queen and a foreign wife is in line with Jeroboam bringing the nation to worship at an idol. This stuff is serious. The parents, if you're watching your children walk down a road with someone that is of poor character, can you at least be a speed bump? Well, they'll be mad at me. I don't care. They've been mad at you before. My 15-month-old is mad at me all the time. But it doesn't mean he can run out in traffic and get hit and die. Well, that's over the top. No, it's not. Talk to somebody that's unequally yoked. Let them tell you their story. Parents, can you please have an awkward conversation with your kids every once in a while? They were given to you. They get mad and they storm out. Okay, they slam the door. All right, get in there. Deal with it. At least be a speed bump. Some people are just so flattered by the idea that their son or daughter is dating somebody that's popular or cute or whatever else. If they just let stupid stuff just go on. Then they call you five or ten later, five or ten years later, just broken hearted, or God help them if they have children trying to rear children in a home that doesn't believe the same thing. He married a wicked person. Married a wicked queen. And my heart breathes for this. You want to know why? Because Solomon is the one that showed the habit. The wisest man ever to live did the exact same thing. The wisest, the wisest total man. All man. What else did the doctor of bad leadership do? Verses 31. Had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam of Nebat. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ishbaal. And king of the Sidonians and went and served Baal and worshipped him. What else did he do? He worshipped demons. The Bible's very clear. You and I in our modern day are seeing this thing come about full circle. And like we're going to have to talk about this UFO thing and some other things that have come up in the last couple days. Like we're going to have to dip our toe into this stuff. Why? Because at the end of scripture it says there's going to be an illusion that is so great that if the elect could be swayed away they would be. That ought to terrify me and you. There is some grand illusion that is that is coming. I don't know when. I'm not going to say when. Five years from now, 25 years from now, 150 years from now, it doesn't matter. The point is, you and I need to deal with these things as they come up. They just released a ton of documentation from the military that UFOs are real. Like, okay, well, we need to, we need to start sorting through that as a church instead of waiting until it's over and we don't have a, an opinion on something. He worshipped demons. Baal, the Asherah, these things that showed a, 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 a portion of power. Demonic influences. Not every psychic in the world was a fool, a liar, or, or just a trickster. Some of them have knowledge of things they shouldn't have knowledge of. There's demonic influence there. 
with beings that are more powerful or, or hidden from our view that we cannot understand, that we don't know everything about. But you have to see all of Scripture to see a story. The Bible says that the enemy is the prince of the power of the air. How much influence does he have over things that are going on? Well, in the Old Testament, we see that when it comes to Egypt and the Exodus, what were the uh, magicians of Pharaoh able to do? They were able to mimic what? The first two or the first three miracles? Somebody yell it out because my brain's foggy. Two? They could do two? Right? They made staffs into snakes and they turned the bowl of water into blood, right? What had Moses done? He dropped his staff, it turned into a snake. He picked it up, it turned back into a staff. The Nile River, what? Flows red. What do the magicians do? The Bible says they do the same thing, only on a smaller scale. They had power, but it was limited. To the point in Exodus when it says, at, at, at either number three or number four, the magicians say, we can't follow that. It's like the finger of God is at work. Because it was. I'm opening a can of worms here that I'm not even going to be able to touch today, but I need you to understand, when these things come out in the news, there is a... A, a biblical, maybe not total explanation, but you better have something in tune because why? When they come out and say aliens are real, what are you and I going to do? Because that's the illusion of what's coming. And Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And there is some illusion coming so grand that if the elect, the church, could be pulled away and made to believe, they would do it. That's how powerful the influences will be. So he worshipped demons. What else did he do? Verse 33, second half of that. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. What else did he do? He provoked his enemy. You and I live in a culture where maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago to be called Ahab or Jezebel may be a, a, a pejorative. It may be something that, wow, that's terrifying. I can't believe you would say that. Now people would relish in it. They would love the idea. If you watch what's happened in our culture in the last 15, 20 years, we've taken all the worst sinful male qualities and we've looked at the women and said, you should partake just like the men do. You should do all of these things that for years we knew were sinful and ungodly and wrong. And you should partake too. A couple pastors got in a whole lot of trouble by mentioning someone's name with the idea of Jezebel. So there is still an undercurrent of this is not a good thing. But the culture in large loves it. The culture in large loves the idea of being a Jezebel. Get what you want. Take what you want. Who cares who gets hurt? You do what you have to do. And when we read her story in the coming days, in the coming weeks, you're going to be floored by how evil she was. But he provoked his enemies. You and I live in a culture that does the same thing. There's a road being paved in this passage. The evil of the moment will set God's people up for tremendous trial, but also tremendous blessing. Because this is this story is juxtaposed. It's put into position with Elijah, the prophet there. So we have to read them as together. It will set God's people up to see him work in and through them. The miraculous will come in them and through them. Power and courage and strength will come in them and be pushed through them to combat this wickedness. It will show the power and the sovereignty of God. You see, as we, uh, as we deal with frustrating rulers, 
The idea is always power or authority. And what happens is when you and I get put into positions where God is the only one that can come through, what we see is His power and His sovereignty. That God is still in charge. Even though wicked people seem to be. Elijah's story will tell us that. It will allow for heroes to step forward and shine for the glory of God and the blessing of those to come. Because there's a man for the hour to come. I thought of this as I was putting these notes down and I want you to take it and I want you to chew on it. Out of the shadow of wickedness, the hero appears. We run from things that are hard constantly. But you and I don't talk about people that did that. We don't talk about people that did that. We talk about people and we write history books about people and we write biographies about people and we lift their stories up not because it was easy or they ran from the fight, but because they dug their heels in in a moment of tremendous darkness, they rose above it, out of that wickedness, out of that shadow of wickedness, they shone forth as a hero or a heroine. And we look at them and we applaud their stories. We look at them and we try to emulate them. But yet in real time, right now, what do we find ourselves doing constantly? Trying to go the easier route. We don't want to ruffle feathers. We don't want to pay a price. We don't want to do this or we don't want to do that. And because of that, we work ourselves out of a moment to be heroic. Why? Because out of Ahab's kingdom is going to come chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook of Cherith. That is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. There is a man coming for this hour. He is a man and he has a message. You have a message too. And like Elijah's in the moment, it probably won't be well received. Are you willing to tell it? Are you willing to say it? Am I? We have a message. And you are the man or the woman for that hour in the moment you are in. You see, the punishment of bad leadership is felt by everyone. The Bible says when the wicked are in power, the people groan. All the people groan. But what do we see in the story of Elijah? There is a, there's a difference to how much you and I will experience that love the Lord and honor Him. Elijah is a picture of that. So the idea you and I need to be building is it doesn't matter who is in charge as far as what God is going to do, what He wants to do, or what He's called me to do. Now, in a nation where we pick our rulers, there's a little more to deal with in between those two things. Elijah didn't get to help pick the king. The king was the king. And the king was evil. And Elijah was going to stand before him and say... It's not going to rain and there will be no dew. There's going to be a drought. This is going to be significant. Why? Because you have sinned and you've led the nation to sin. And until I say so, when God tells me to say it, there's going to be no rain, no dew. What kind of position do you think that put him in with the king? 
That's a hard spot. If you stand up as a parent at a school board meeting and say, you shouldn't be teaching my children about this, this, or this, what position is that going to put you in? If you stand up at work and say, I'm not going to celebrate this, what position is that going to put you in at work? I will not celebrate things that condemn people to hell or curse their life. What position is that going to put you in at work? What's it going to put you in? With your friends, with your family. He had a message. You have a message. And the world needs it now more than ever. They don't want it, but they need it. Elijah's story will be the reminder that the godly will escape some of God's corporate punishment. Not all of it, some of it. There's a grace, there's a blessing, there's a love, there's a care, there's mission, there's all these other things that your circumstances cannot touch. This church is one of those things. As bad as it gets out there, this place needs to be safe, loving, and kind. A spot where you can come in and breathe and exhale and rest. Where the word of God is open, where prayers are prayed and songs are sung. And strength and safety are here. This place needs to be that. Why? Because out there is going to get worse. And so you and I need to fight like crazy to protect that here. We don't gossip. We don't tell false stories. We don't churn things up that need to be squashed. We have uh, conversations that need to be had. We deal with things privately that need to be private. And then if they have to get public, we deal with them in a God-honoring way. We do those through prayer, through prayer and, and, and love and fasting. But we need to work like crazy to protect this church. Because you and I are going to need it more in the future than we do right now. He is a man for the hour. What's, what's the premise of these five verses is he is not forsaken. The word of the Lord came. What's our equivalent? What's our equivalent to this idea? The word of the Lord came to Elijah and he went to give it. Does the word of the Lord reside with us? Absolutely. God help us to have a hunger for it. But most of us, it, it, it sits dusty all week, all month, all year. We pick it up every once in a while and kind of wipe it off and tote it to church. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. The word of the Lord resides with us. Does the word of the Lord reside in you? You better believe it does. The Holy Spirit taking up residence in us is what? It is bringing to our attention what Jesus has commanded. And the more you and I put in, the stronger we will be. The more we will realize uh, what's going on before we get in the middle of the mess. See, the equivalent of the word of the Lord came to Elijah was the Lord. The word of the Lord resides in us and it resides with us. And it does so constantly. We don't or won't have to wait for God's direction. Pick the word up and read it and you will know what to do when the moment comes. One of the hardest things to, to, to counsel people in is the idea of expecting the worst. Why? Because you don't get surprised. That's one of the hardest things to counsel somebody, especially somebody that's working through uh, some kind of relationship where there's a hope that they'll fix it. That something's going on, but there's some repentance that needs to be had, and they're both still sinners, but they're working through it real hard. And you look at them, especially privately, you look at one of them and say, listen, you need to expect the worst, at least in moments. And it blows their mind. But what happens if you don't expect that? When the worst happens, you get surprised. And then you start to flail 
and the emotions well up. But if you've built a defense against it, I knew that was going to happen. You're ready for it. God's word is the same way with what you and I are going through as a people, as a culture. Know the word and you'll know people. Know the word and you won't be surprised when you have to grind against or push against what the world is throwing at you. Know the word and when some false Christian comes in with some demonic thought or action or whatever else, you can say that is not true. That is going to hurt you, your church, your family. Because it's happening all the time. Know the word tell you something just totally amazing because I think you and I are going to get familiar with it. Though not a mansion or a palace, the brook provided for Elijah gave him his needs while his peace and his mission were both still intact. Remember I told you a couple weeks ago, God's blessings don't tear your nets. This is that idea again. Instead of being in a palace, instead of being in a mansion, God sends Elijah by the brook and at the brook, his mission is still intact. His peace of mind is still intact, but his needs are being met. That's what's happening in this passage. God has given him the blessings that don't destroy his nets. Go there and I will take care of you. You and I need to be comfortable with that idea. The limelight, the palace, the mansion, whatever it is. God's will and God's mission is not there for us. Now is a time that you and I take inventory. And we live where the mission and the peace of God has set us. His peace was intact as the rest of Israel was stuck in a drought. How about this one? Keep reading with me. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour and a jar of a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple sticks that I may go and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, bring me a little cake. Of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord send, sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. You see, heroes breed other heroes. Billy Graham once said, when a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. When a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. What happens in verse 7 to verse 8? What happens in verse 7? The brook dries up. Now, does Elijah know what God is going to do before the brook dries up? He does not. Wake up one morning, look down, whoa, out of water. And God says, I got it. I've already commanded. I've already commanded a woman to feed you. What's next is already there. Just go and do what you know to do. Verse 7 to verse 8. And then is very powerful. The brook dries up. And then God has his next piece of the puzzle ready. Not before. The heroine is the anti-Jezebel. Why? They come from the same city. Did you pick that up? 
pretty cool, isn't it? God sends Elijah to the same city the evil queen come from. The same country she come from. There's two power couple here, two power couples that are going to vie for the attention of the nation of Israel. Elijah and the widow. Ahab and Jezebel. That to me, when I read that and actually put that together, floored me. She is the anti-Jezebel. She is the honoring of the Lord. She is the down and out. She has no power. She's prepared to die. She's going to be faithful with the last that she has, opposite to this horrible, wicked queen that is going to take and ruin and kill and steal and destroy. And God uses the prophet from nowhere and the widow getting ready to die and wedges them against the king and the queen of Israel. Fascinating stuff. God's couple versus Satan's power couple. The will of God and the command of God will come with the provision of God. What God tells you to do, what He has willed for you to do, will come with the provision to make it happen. Stop being scared that your calling is not going to have with it exactly what you need to fulfill it. It will have everything you need. There will be faith. There will be courage. There will be words. Just take the next step to do what God has told you to do. He fills in the details as we go. God's sovereignty supersedes man's frailty. And why do I say that in this? Because what widow is going to make her last meal and give it to another person? There's not many, if any. Especially, and I think you and I are brought into this emotionally stronger why? Because it's her and her son. So who's going to take their son's last meal and give it to a stranger? Nobody. And yet we find this emotional attachment built into this widow that she is going to honor God. And because of that, you and I will speak her name today. Or at least speak about her. So this widow is, is placed there by God to take care of Elijah. And she's placed there by God that you and I may know her now, talk to her, see her life, lift it up and say, do the right thing in the right order and God will take care of the rest. And when you do that, who is blessed by her obedience? Elijah, her son, and what else does Scripture say? Her whole family. You want to be a blessing? Do what God tells you to do. And you will be a light in a dark place. And there will be more partake in what you have to offer than just the people in your immediate family. You will be a blessing to many. An oasis of rest and peace. And finally, verse 17. And this, uh, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged. And he laid 
uh, him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord. And he said, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity upon this widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord. And the Lord, uh, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. Verse 23, and Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. You see, there's one goal to punishment and miracle, and it's to make every heart and every knee bow down. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. As you and I get set in a position where these things come to light more often, and believe me, if we find ourselves in a position where there is persecution or suffering for the cause of Christ, you and I will see God work like we have never seen Him before. Why? Because the goal is always the same. Every miracle and every punishment is built to make the knee bow and the heart bow. So what happens in this passage is this miracle brings about the, the full belief of who Elijah is. Why? Because his word has come true. This miracle has been performed in the midst of intense suffering. Elijah's position points to God's hand and God's will. They are connected. If you call yourself a Christian, what you do tomorrow matters because it connects you with the Lord. Do you wear a cross? Do you have a Jesus fish on your car? Do you do other things that just point to the idea that you believe in the Lord? Well, then you are connected to Him. And some of the people that wear and carry those things, they pretend to be connected to Him. How you and I act and how we obey chooses the difference. It picks the difference for us. Do we obey the word of the Lord or do we just do what we want? Do we just carry the Bible around or is that Jesus fish on our car just for some reason? I don't know. Maybe you like the way it looked. It was chrome and it went good with your rims. I don't know what to tell you, but some people just wear these things and fake these things. You are connected to the Lord's mission. That's how important you are in this life. You say, I am a Christian. All of a sudden, you are an ambassador for God. What you do speaks on His behalf. How you act is a reflection of Him. You call yourself a Christian, literally that means a little Christ. Then what you do and what you say reflect on Him. That's the problem if you and I don't know the Word and we produce a false witness. You know, our culture right now is all about love and tolerance. Boy, we sure have kicked truth out the door. Bible says, Jesus says, you and I are to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We are to be wise and truthful. We are to be true and loving. That is what an ambassador looks like. God's mission doesn't take us off the playing field of daily need and earthly service and care. Your mission will be right where you are. You do not have to be called to ministry. You do not have to go halfway around the world. When you wake up in the morning and the phone call you get is hard. You got to pay those bills. You got to do that job. You got to work. You got to do all those things. Yes, and God's mission is right there waiting for you. It's in the earthy stuff, not outside of it. The church for so long has thought Christian work was done over here and, and worldly stuff was put over here by itself. There is no secular time, it's all sacred. You go to work and be on mission, you go to the ball field and sit in a bleacher on mission, get to know some of these other kids and their parents on mission. 
Don't waste a minute. Watch your TV on mission. Probably means we can't watch everything we're watching. Agree or disagree? These moments are fleeting. These hours are fleeting. They are decreasing as we sit here right now. So what we do with the rest of them is of utmost importance. Do you understand? I don't want a third or a quarter half my life burn up before Jesus because I spent it with my eyes in my phone or my eyes on a TV. Earthy problems are created for heavenly solutions. And earthy blessings are created for heavenly glory. They come this morning to play and we get ready to wrap up. Application for our moment. How do we apply all of this stuff? When you read this story, what do you and I see? What's the wickedness of the moment? There's poor leadership everywhere. There's poor leadership everywhere. That is a sign of wickedness of the moment. It's either inept or it's evil. And those are both curses from God. So it's everywhere. That's creating an atmosphere where you and I need to be interacting in a way that looks like Elijah. Wise and shrewd and truthful. The piece that most people can't understand right now in our culture is how you and I do that as a Christian in a way that honors God not only in the church but at the ballot box. That's the piece that's missing. Elijah didn't have a choice. We do. So how do we honor God with how we operate in that? I mean, some people just think, I guess God's not going to hold us accountable for a vote. You've been given a stewardship for your country. It's a massive blessing. It, I, it would be foolish for me to think that we're not going to give an account. And I'm not telling you to vote one way or another. I'm telling you to do it seriously. Do it with the Word of God. But there's poor leadership, and that is creating a challenge in our culture. What else? There's church corruption. There's church corruption everywhere. Through material affluence, we have no needs. So we don't need God. Feels good in here this morning. The power's on. There's a little food in the refrigerator. We've got some coffee. Like we're good. And some churches are just ten times more than that. There's material affluence. We don't need God so we don't seek Him. We're okay. And we need to fight that like crazy. What else is going on? There's political massaging or deferment. What I mean is we're folding the gospel into political stuff. That's not the case. The church cannot do that. We will not save people through D.C. All you or I are doing in that atmosphere is trying to keep people from getting what they want. Does that make sense? As our culture spirals out of control, as the world begs for worldly things, you know what happens? The curse of God, the punishment of God gets more and more eminent. You and I don't save people through the ballot box. All we are honestly trying to do is just hold the line. Why? Because punishment is corporate. Having bad leadership is a corporate punishment we're all dealing with right now. Why? Because we have rejected biblical influence. We've rejected biblical morality. Or we defer it and pretend it to be no big deal. I do not believe that. It's not the main deal, but it is a big deal. We need to engage as Christian people. If nothing but for the opportunity to give the gospel. We're sinners. We're broken. We're in need. When you give these people power to make decisions over other people, they do things that curse them. There is biblical ignorance and manipulation everywhere. And there are personal and corporate tendencies of isolation tribalism and the resulting fear and frustration to both 
Like, this is the culture we find ourselves in right now, and we're trying to figure out what in the world is going on. All of those things are happening right now. We distrust people. We don't want to be close to them. We isolate. We would rather watch Netflix than have to go out in the real world and deal with real people. We would rather have our phone stuck, our face stuck in our phone than we would be actually have to interact like real people with other people. These are cursing our culture, and you and I are living in it. And because of that, this picture of Elijah is going to get clearer and clearer as we dig our heels in to what is right and what is true and what is loving. We're going to find ourselves on the front lines over and over and over. I hope that makes sense. Things are not getting better. We live in West Virginia, so you get a little bit of a reprieve. What are we, about 20 years behind those things? Your children and your grandchildren, though, are going to wake up one day in a school system that has no Christian influence. They're going to wake up one day in a school system that tells a five-year-old they get to pick their sex. And an eight-year-old, they ought to be able to surgically make it permanent. We shake our heads in disbelief. That is right now. Middle school kids talking about who they prefer to have sex with. Right? Am I right or wrong? I hate to say it from the pulpit. That's the world we're living in. That's the world we're handing our children. Why? Because all these things are happening at once. We don't trust leadership. We don't trust the scripture anymore to be self-sufficient. We don't trust uh, uh, our neighbors. We don't love them. We're not close to them. So what's the will of God for your life right now? Are you going to be a wallflower or are you going to be a hero? Are you going to stand to the side and just let it come? Are you going to stand up out of the shadow of this wickedness? Heroes are going to come. Are you going to be one of them or are you not? The Lord has equipped us be heroic. Now the world is going to give us the opportunity. We need to step up. We need to love people well. We need to be kind. But we need to be mission and truthful. Would you stand with me this morning as they sing and they play? You come if you need something.